Hi, I'm TechCrunch Managing Editor Daryl Etherington. This is the TechCrunch Podcast, where we cover everything you need to know about the week's top stories in tech from the people who wrote them. This week, I talk with Don Midori Davis about the coalition of VCs that are standing up for reproductive rights. And Jacqueline Melanick comes on to break down the FTX Binance saga that's unfolded and continues to unfold over the past week. But first, I'll break down the biggest stories in tech. As looks to be the case for the foreseeable future, Twitter under Elon Musk made plenty of headlines this week. First, after laying off half the company, a number of reports indicated remaining leaders under Musk were going back hat in hand to get some important people to come back. Then, Twitter actually launched its blue check verification program in a really clumsy way with in-app purchases launching before actual functionality shipped. Despite preventing new accounts from buying Blue and getting the accompanying verification, hundreds of accounts, if not more, sprung up impersonating celebrities and important people and spouting nonsense. Some mostly funny, but some actually harmful. Twitter then had its first big test with the U.S. midterm election, but it's early yet to tell how the Musk Helm company handled the accompanying spike in misinformation. Spoiler, it's probably not going to be great. Finally, on Thursday, Twitter's InfoSec apparatus saw a significant number of departures, led by CISO Leah Kistner. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission also said it's watching the situation unfold at Twitter with, quote, deep concern. Lots more on this on TechCrunch, and we have a topic page under the tag Elon Buys Twitter on the site, so you can check it all out there. The U.S. Department of Justice said this week that it seized $3.36 billion in Bitcoin from a man who got it illegally on dark web marketplace Silk Road more than 10 years ago. This is the second largest financial seizure the DOJ has ever made. James Zong, the man who it was seized from, pled guilty to wire fraud this month and faces a maximum term of 20 years in prison. More on the site from Jacqueline Melanick. Meta announced it was laying off 11,000 employees this week, which adds up to 13% of its total workforce. The company confirmed the layoffs via a letter it published attributed to CEO and co-founder Mark Zuckerberg, who claimed accountability for the unfortunate turn of events. The letter mostly focused on next steps for laid-off employees and compensation details, which included 16 weeks of severance pay across the board, plus an additional two weeks for every year of service. In a regulatory filing that accompanied the letter regarding the layoffs, Meta said it still expects the operating losses for its Reality Labs-focused Metaverse efforts to, quote, grow significantly year over year. More on this from Paul Soros on TechCrunch. And we've also got coverage of plenty of other layoffs from around the tech industry as they continue, including Salesforce. First up, Domodori Davis and I talk about the coalition of over 100 VC firms that are supporting reproductive rights. Hey, Dom, how's it going? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. I think we're all dealing with like some news overload these many past weeks. There's a lot going on, but excited to talk to you about something a little bit out of the ridiculous echo chamber of Twitter news. No, everything's been wild. On It's like literally every news at one time. It's the Elon, it's the crypto thing, and then like the midterm elections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe the concurrence of it all. It's really such a wild coincidence that it's all happening right now. But yes, we wanted to talk to you about an article you actually wrote last week, but still relevant, will be relevant for a long time since. I think that's kind of bittersweet. It'd be nice if it wasn't relevant in some ways. You know what I mean, in the positive way, if it was like not an issue anymore. But do you want to talk to us about the article you wrote last week about this VCs for Repro coalition? Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. So basically I got like an email. One of the investors who started it like reached out to me. They were like, can you respond by 8am about like, you know, covering it? Cause they were going to 
and break it. And then like, I, it was got lost in my email. So luckily mm. I found it at eight 15 in the morning and I was like, Oh no, I'm late. But I was like, am I late question mark? And they were like, no, let's do this. And so <laughs> it was like really fast when they sent me like the press release and everything for it. It hadn't been finished yet. And it was so interesting because I had been covering like how the investor community was going to respond to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Right. It was really interesting to see that this was them responding, but not even like this is just them responding. This is like a hundred firms have come together saying like, hey, we need to vote in support of reproductive health come the midterm elections, which is kind of like, I want to say it's unprecedented. Like I haven't. No, I feel like it is because I was reading it and I was like, wait a minute, is this? It's like specifically around political action, but it's like at first, you know, before I read your article, I was kind of like, oh, like, I guess it means they'll be agreeing to like have this reproductive technology maybe like represented in their portfolio or something. Right. But it's like, no, like it's a group around voter action and political action. Right. It was interesting because I don't think this made it into the piece, but they were talking about how when the draft was leaked, I believe it was either when the draft was leaked or when the overturn actually happened, that some investors had already started sending out letters and informal notices to each other about how they need to respond and act. So there was already something like within the Whisper Network happening. And Mm -hmm. then I guess it kind of grew into this, which because we always talk about like you're bringing up like the economic side of all of this. But this is kind of just blatantly saying, you know, aside from giving money, we also have social and cultural influence in the world. And it's time to start using that. And it's kind of like they're like admitting like they are cultural tastemakers. And I had done a piece before on conservatives, um, a lot of conservative VCs who kind of already had this figured out. They've already been doing this, already kind of influencing the politics and stuff. They're very quiet about it, but we definitely feel the impact. I mean, J.D. Vance in Ohio was backed by some pack that Peter Thiel gave 10 million to or something. He won his seat yesterday. And so we definitely feel the impact And I remember like when I was talking to founders about it, one founder was like, well, yeah, well, progressive investors need to do more because it's time to start fighting fire with fire. So when I saw this, I was like, this is definitely fire. And I guess we're doing this. Yeah, no, I I was thinking about your piece, too, about the kind of way that conservative money moves around and and powers a lot of the ecosystem. Right. But you brought it up there. It's the fact that it's quiet is, I think, what is like this significant difference to what I've seen before with this, right? Like usually people kind of like move their influence around behind the scenes. Like they don't really want the spotlight to be on the fact that they're participating in this necessarily. Whereas this is very overt, a very overt act, which I think is great, but yeah. No, because I mean, even like VC as a whole is so hidden to the average person. Like it's really quiet in general. So the fact that this is so public and overt, one thing that is common with the industry is that it is gate kept for a reason and it's quiet for a reason. But this mm. is kind of like standing up to say like, hi, we're here more than 100 firms and we have over 106 billion of assets under management. And we're saying this. And that's yeah. like a really big deal. Yeah, it is a big deal. I think it's going to be like, I have a big question about like what comes next, right? Like, does it change the strategy on the other side? And do you start seeing more explicitly that, political divide in the VC community that, I mean, it's much more muted when you compare it to sort of the general divide in the U.S. among voters on the right and on the left, I feel like. But do you agree with that? Or Because a lot of times people seem not to want to necessarily put their politics forward and like 
economically, they're all capitalists, obviously, but like beyond that, there's not much discussion of it going on or hasn't been in the past. No, I've definitely been thinking about that too, because people are like, oh my gosh, it's about the money, not the politics, blah, blah, blah. I mean, money is politics. Right. I was also thinking if we were going to start to now see a very clear divide between right investors and blue investors, especially because I don't know, I mean, that division is kind of, I'm just thinking about in how divided right now politics in general is. So kind of taking these political stances, I've been thinking about what comes next because the coalition, they said that they also want to look at other social issues such as immigration, data privacy, and food safety and stuff like that. So they definitely have plans to keep going and keep targeting. And it would be interesting to see what these conservative VCs will do because they're obviously right now not as open and loud with what they do. So kind of Mm -hmm. seeing what the balance will be there. It'll be interesting. Yeah, especially I didn't know that you were the one who unfortunately broke the news to me that J.D. Vance won his uh, his seat. So I apologize for that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, with stuff like that, it's like, do you start just being more open about it? Because it seems to be effective in some way. Right. But yeah, I think it's definitely going to be something we watch as we we're seeing that divide show up more sharply in other places, too. So you have to imagine it's going to follow MVC. But like on the positive side, this is really great. Right. And it, and it's nice to see this kind of declaration and assignment. And not only because of like what it means in terms of message, but also it introduces a kind of accountability. Right. Because all these people have publicly said, this is what I do. And then you know, if there's ever any issue where you go like, well, why did you back this? Or, oh, but you work with these LPs and they've expressed this kind of interest before. Like it kind of helps a guarantee that they will continue to support it in deed as well as in speech. Right. Yeah. And I was actually going to host a Twitter space kind of about that today, talking about how before there seemed to be this time where people were afraid to really take these public stances that could be seen as, quote unquote, controversial or even call people out by names. But I feel like the fear is slowly waning. I don't think people are as scared as they used to be. And I think this is kind of a turning point. We're going to see, though. But I think it's going to start heating up, especially as the presidential election comes and especially with just all of the the things that are happening, the intersection of culture and innovation, you know, like climate change and climate tech and like reproductive health and all like the health tech companies. I think that the two are going to get closer. And because of that, we're going to start seeing people make more noise about it. Yeah, for sure. The other thing that I've found, this is total aside. (laughs) I have to bring it up, though, because it was so weird. Backstage Capital GP, Christy Pitts. Strange thing about this, this has nothing to do with anything, is that there is a park in Toronto called Christy Pitts. Is it really? Yes, yes. And it's spelt exactly the same and everything. And every time... I don't know. She must. Someone must have told her at some point because it's such a strange coincidence to have that happen. Maybe that's her park, though. It could be. It could. Be. I think it's been there for a very long time and named that for a very long time. So I don't think so. Named after the park, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that could be. That could be for sure. Yeah. Sorry for my ridiculous divergence there. But I just every time I see it in print or anywhere, I'm like, what the hell? It, it gives me that momentary confusion of like, are they talking about the park in Toronto? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to tell her that I have to we have someone has to break the news. <laughs> someone has to if she hasn't heard it before. Yeah. So I think, you know, you mentioned in this. The, the presidential election is coming up. And then we were just talking about the midterms too, right? 
we've been talking about how this could signal change, but do you think there's more that VC firms should be doing, in your opinion, or could be doing? Or do you think it's just sort of like, if they're doing more of the same, that will be kind of enough? Or do you think that the measure should go even further still or anything like that? I think there's always room to do a little bit more, especially because I feel like VCs and tech in general occupies, it it has such this unique place in society where, you know, we have these tech barons of the day and they Mm -hmm. wield so much influence over people. And I feel like investors who are kind of the people behind, you know, those machines, uh, um, I I feel like they definitely could be doing more to wield some influence. I mean, we see like conservative investors are throwing like donor dinners and stuff in Florida. Yeah, I definitely think that there is room for some progressive leaning VCs to start tapping into that, you know, kind of like what the VCs for Repro is saying use more of that social and and cultural power that you have because that's like those are like the soft power skills. Right. That is that is essential too when it comes to just overall power, really. Yeah. So I definitely think there's room to get creative. I hope to see some firms get creative with this. Yeah, I mean I think it's another great signal too for potential investment partners, like for startups, right? Like if you start doing more of this stuff and maybe there are you know different issues that people could kind of rally around and sort of express their support for and then that's just another thing because when you're doing the investor dating you know as some people call it like it's really difficult to figure out how well you're going to mesh and i feel like this is a really important angle for that too right i don't know if you talked about that at all or how that shows up to potential portfolio companies or investment targets or anything like that you mean about like the politics of investors Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's something that's totally been coming up. I mean, like, but, well, this is also me, because since I cover a lot of Black founders, Mm -hmm. that is usually always a conversation in some ways, a little bit, um, since, you know, race is obviously a political issue. And so finding investors that even support the type of businesses that you're trying to start, um, you see founders are, are looking harder as to who they want on their cap table. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it it can come from both sides, right? Like founders can stop going to investors that just do not align with their beliefs and investors can stop giving money to companies that don't align with their beliefs. I guess the question is what type of companies and investors those would be like who would would stop getting the money because we can't just assume that it's, you know, going to be conservative founders and all this stuff. They're not going to get any more money. We can't assume that. So we would have to see what the true politics of the entire industry as a whole is, because right now most of the money is, is held by a few firms. So. Yeah. And that begets it's self-replicating, right? Like it's like, it's held by a few firms and then it goes to like firms. And then those people like, internalized even if they didn't weren't strong politically this is again just me kind of like conspiracy theorizing but i feel like this is how it works right like it it begets more conservative money in the mix when it's coming from that place to begin with right yeah because i mean they're the tastemakers of yeah. what type of companies they want to like peer teal's investment into that ev healthcare thing which is complete like i don't even know like there are so many other actual reproductive health companies that literally anyone with that much money could give money to. Right. And so we see already the type of founders, like, because when everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, people like investing in who the founders that they relate to or who look like them and all this stuff, that is inherently political, all of that. Right. Yes, absolutely. All, like, yeah. So it's always there. 
we just have to see, I guess, what happens next. Yeah, for sure. But I think this is like a, at least a positive step in the right direction. So yeah, let's see more of this, please, everyone. And listeners, if you want to read this article, you can check it out on TechCrunch. It's a TechCrunch Plus story. So typically it would be behind a paywall. But if you're listening now today, you can go check it out for free in its entirety, just as a special deal for you because we love you. And yeah, like it, over the weekend too. So if you're if you're listening a day late or whatever, you, you should still be able to get there. But most people listen to this right fresh. So do go check that out. The uh, article title is more than 100 VC firms join VCs for Repro Coalition to support reproductive rights. And that's by Dom Midori Davis. And thanks so much, Dom, for coming on to talk about this. Yes. Wait, can I just add one more thing? Yeah. Because yeah. I think that there was a very important point when I spoke to the founders of this, Jana and Christy. They brought up a really good point, And that was like, it was important for people to come together so that if something happened, everyone goes down together. Or like, if you're, you don't have to be afraid of backlash, just you, because it would be now a hundred firms that would be getting yeah. this backlash. So, I mean, if someone listening and they're a VC or a founder, I, I would, you know, just keep making making noise and keep asking questions and keep holding people accountable and get the results that you want. The people have a lot of power here. Yeah. And go together. That's a great message, right? Yes, like Go together. Yeah. You are not alone. All right. Well, thanks again, Don. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Next, Jacqueline Melanick gets us up to speed with the ever-changing Binance and FTX fiasco. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, we need... We need your help. <laughs> Everybody needs your help now. It's been a long week. <laughs> <laughs> it has been a long week and it's not even over. And I'm sure more things will happen. We're recording this on Thursday. Hopefully what we talk about now is still kind of representative of the situation on Friday when this podcast comes out. Mm -hmm. But it's changing so fast. No one knows, right? Yeah. So we, yeah. <laughs> I know this is a huge question, <laughs> but what's the story so far? Or where did we where did we start? Let's let's start with the where start. did it all begin? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think honestly, just to preface this, like even if more things do develop by the time this airs, it's all just building on top of each other, sure. like one thing over the next, you know. So, but basically, the previously third largest crypto exchange in the world, FTX, fell from its ranks this past week and is basically treading water now to avoid bankruptcy and hopefully pay back the customers that they took their money from. Uh, and how did we get here? It all started with a report that came from Coindesk last Thursday that contained Alameda Research's balance sheet. And Alameda is basically an affiliated company to FTX because it's owned by FTX's CEO, Sam Bankman fried mm -hmm. which is up for interpretation on whether that's a conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> But details of the balance sheet showed that Alameda's largest assets were FTT, the token behind FTX, the crypto exchange. Just want to make sure we're all here together. All right. With you so far. <laughs> good, good. And so I'll throw a few numbers in, but they basically owned at the time $5.82 billion in FTT, which was over 100% of the total known market cap. Wow. So Wait a Alameda's balance sheet <laughs> was grossly overstated. Yeah. And FTT was a token that they were basically printing out of thin air. Right. And SBF was the parent of both companies. Mm -hmm. So it was a major conflict of interest behind the scenes. And that was something that was brought up throughout the years when he launched FTX and previously started Alameda. Like people were concerned about that, but we never really had the numbers. Right, right. So it always seemed a little suspect, but nobody was really sure 
what that meant on paper or behind the scenes. But this, to me, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like if I was like, oh, look, I have this company and it's called uh, Daryl Stuff or whatever. And like, <laughs> then I'm like, also, I have this bank over here minting Daryl Bucks. And mm-hmm. Daryl Stuff is like really, really profitable. It has tons of money on the bank, but they're all Daryl Bucks, by the way. Mm-hmm. But those are great. Those are worth a lot. But then at the same time, I'm just like, need more Daryl books, run around the print machine. And then mm-hmm. they're going into the other thing to kind of prop it up. Is that fair? Is That's a fair analogy. I don't know oh, if the okay, situation okay. is fair. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't mean the yeah, situation, yeah. but as long as yeah, that yeah. analogy is accurate, then oh, that's yeah. good. That, okay, okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So obviously, this is just the beginning. I mean, we're still in last week. And the revelations from this article basically scared Binance. Why is Binance involved, you might ask? Well, Mm. they are the world's largest crypto exchange, and they were also an early investor of FTX. Right. But they decided to cash out of their equity last year through a $2.1 billion combination of FTT tokens and stablecoins opposed to cash because it's crypto. Apparently, they just didn't want cash. Who knows? And they've been holding most of it since. And on Sunday... CZ, who is the CEO of Binance, shared that as part of Binance's exit from FTX equity, it's going to liquidate any remaining FTT from that $2.1 billion bag. Wow. After it had, quote, recent revelations come to light, uh, which is probably <laughs> that article. <laughs> right. It was yeah. like, oh, are they the same revelations we all got? <laughs> the ones that we all read? That yeah. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So... CZ said at the time they would try to liquidate it in a way that minimizes market impact. And over a few months period, it's literally been a few days. And of course, this caused like panic across the industry. Yeah. So FTX actually paused customer withdrawals earlier this week after it had about $5 billion worth of withdrawal requests on Sunday, according to a tweet that Sam Bankman-Fried put out on Thursday. Because everyone saw all this, mm-hmm. panicked, and we're like, well, I'm going to go get my money out because you're holding my money, right? Yeah. And then he did the uh, It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> the money's not here. It's in your house. Yeah. in your house. Yeah, so we will actually get to that because it, it gets worse. Yeah. It does get worse. <laughs> okay. So it looked like Sam Bankman-Fried and CZ were basically fighting on Twitter. They were going at each other. Well, not literally, but indirectly saying like that they didn't like each other for the most part. And then on Mm. Tuesday, it comes out that Binance signed a letter of intent to purchase FTX. What? You know? (laughs) So obviously, it was like a last-ditch effort from FTX to save the company. And just over 24 hours later, Binance backed out of the plan on Wednesday after reviewing FTX's structure and books. And they put out a statement that said, quote, Issues are beyond our control or ability to help. Which wow. definitely, Ooh. yeah, felt like they were rubbing more salt into an already pretty bad wound. <laughs> yeah, because it looked like, I mean, based on this, like they saw the public reports and they were like, oh, like bad situation. We're going to liquidate our position or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Or get rid of it. And then, but they were like, but you know what? Now we could help you maybe. We could buy you and like make that right if it's in line with kind of what we imagine it would be based on publicly available information. And then they looked inside and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> like way, way worse than even anybody previously thought. Yeah. Right. So. And FTX also reached out to OKX, which is another crypto exchange, and they also declined. So right. this is definitely more messy than what's even meeting the public. And There's been a lot of conversations about why Binance would even offer to do this and then back out. 
And that's up for interpretation, of course. But I don't think them backing out of the deal or the whole situation is good for anyone. Like, yes, Binance is still on top. They are still the number one crypto exchange. But if you look at prices across the board, everything is down. I think Bitcoin was last near like 15,000 maybe. And it's just like, it's not just FTT token, which is down tremendously. It's a bunch of cryptocurrencies. The whole crypto ecosystem is getting shaken by this because, you know, FTX was like considered like the white knight of the industry when everything was going down back in the spring between Terra Luna and Celsius, Voyager, BlockFi, all of them imploding. It turns out, and that's what we'll get to today, that Alameda did too. So Mm -hmm. the latest developments on the matter that came out on Thursday is reports surfacing that FTX lent $10 billion worth of customers' assets to prop up Alameda. Ooh, <laughs> boy. So, it's not a good situation to get into. No, it is not. <laughs> and the crypto hedge fund 3AC, uh, 3 Arrow Capital, imploded back in the spring, and so did Alameda behind closed doors, and SBF basically was like, here's $10 billion. Stay alive. Right, right. And that $10 billion it lent accounted for more than half of its $16 billion total in customer assets. So going back Uh, to what you said earlier about, oh, our money's fine, right? Wrong. Uh, (laughs) Wrong, yeah. It's it's not even anywhere. It it literally doesn't exist anymore, Yeah, they traded it. They traded it away. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, this is another analogy time, right? It's like the classic, Mm -hmm. like... It's just a gambler who gets way over their skis. Mm-hmm. Like it's somebody who's like, well, don't worry. I'll, I'll make, make it, it back, back yeah. from the gains, mm-hmm. right? And it's like, no, and especially on this scale. I mean, so I know SBF has issued an apology. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> he was like, sorry, sorry, anyways. <laughs> like literally in his tweet, he would apologize. And he wrote, anyways, right now. So yeah, right. um, I could go into that. I f***ed yeah. up. He said I f***ed up, right? <laughs> he did. We can swear yeah, on this podcast. Yeah, he definitely yeah, did, yeah. yeah. I mean, he's... He's just 30. That's uh, how a 30-year-old of a fallen billionaire empire would probably apologize, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it's when you're dealing with the scale of it, right? Like, I'm trying to put myself in that position. You couldn't even fathom, right? Like, I don't – frankly, he he should be terrified. I mean, if he's not terrified, he will be soon, right? Because at some point – and I saw somebody tweet to this effect, but like – this is basically one of the things that Gensler over at the SEC has been waiting for, mm-hmm. right? Like he's going to be all over this because it proves his like mm-hmm. thesis of like they're all securities and we should treat them as securities. Because this is exactly what would happen in like a securities sham mm-hmm. pyramid, right? Yeah, the craziest thing too, and I'm glad you brought up Gary Gensler, is that SBF was heavily involved in D.C. He was constantly right. out there lobbying, talking about crypto, how it needs regulation, But it was probably in a way that he wanted it done. Meanwhile, he was doing shady stuff in his own company. Mm -hmm. And so I have a feeling this is going to cause a massive ripple effect in D.C. and anger for basically getting duped because people were listening to him. They were trusting him. Genzer was having meetings with him. We could see that on his own agenda. And this whole time, all of this was going on underneath. And they didn't even know. Yeah. So this is this brings me to a question around the regulation. I know, you know, Gensler has been very vocal about kind of like it's an open door policy. Come in and talk to me, book a meeting, mm-hmm. come in and talk to me. And then people on the other side are like, it's, that's not actually true. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not the way it works. Yeah. So you could debate whether that's even actually the practice. But like, does this change that? Like, will his tune now be like, sorry, the open door policy is 
closed <laughs> and now we're going to punishment land. Like what happens now? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I just feel like everything moves so slowly in DC. Like when Terra Luna mm-hmm. imploded, I thought we would see stablecoin regulation within a couple months. And that right. was back in April. So that's what, five months later? I don't know. Am I good at math? Yeah. Yeah. Eh, a little uh, more than five months, seven months. I'm terrible at yeah. math, so this is really bad. Yeah, no, seven months ago, like this them. happened. And right. we really haven't had any clarity on that. And that wiped out yeah. billions of dollars in the industry. And this as well is wiping out billions of dollars. So would I like to believe that they will do something swiftly? Yes. But the reality of that is it'll probably take more time, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And the open door policy, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you'll be greeted with like uh, an immediate arraignment or whatever. It's to some kind of grand jury instead, right? But, uh. So what uh, you talked about the impacts to the larger crypto market. So can you explain just a little bit about why you think it's having such wide-reaching ripple effects to other cryptocurrencies as well? Yeah, for sure. So as I kind of mentioned, FTX was like the white knight of this whole industry. And a lot of individuals and funds alike stored their crypto on FTX. So we saw with Multicoin, which is a massive firm, they lost about 10% or 10% Mm -hmm. of it is stuck, quote unquote, in FTX. Mm -hmm. And there's someone who like invests across the industry. So that's one example of this. But also in terms of the cryptocurrency prices, basically, there's just like, a thing called FUD in the industry. I don't know if you guys are Mm, familiar with the term, but fear, uncertainty, uncertainty and doubt. doubt. Yes. And so... Long-standing tech term. We used to use it around like phones and shit, but now it's like billions of dollars (laughs) worth of assets. uh, Fair enough. (laughs) But yeah, I think there's a lot of FUD across the industry. And when one thing like this falls, there's often hundreds of dominoes behind it falling as well. And so... I actually said this earlier this week in a tweet, but like this whole situation with FTX is awful. And what has happened is literally just the beginning of it. It's like when the Titanic goes to hit the iceberg, you might think it's just that iceberg up top, but no, it's like a massive mound underneath of so much more that's not uncovered. And so unfortunately, I think a lot more companies, individuals, and the cryptocurrency market will belly up from this. Because mm-hmm. there's so much left to be untold. And, you know, we're still learning new things every day. At the beginning, you were like, oh, maybe something else will come out tomorrow by the time this podcast comes out. I hope that's not the yeah. case, but it's very likely <laughs> that that is a possibility, you know? So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here for sure. But yeah. now sources are saying that Sam Bankman-Fried is looking to put together a rescue package up to $9.4 billion for FTX. And he's looking to raise the funds from a handful of players, a billion from the Tron founder, Justin Sun, a billion from the crypto exchange, OKX, the one that didn't do a deal with Mm. him, a billion from Tether, two billion from investment funds, and the remainder would come from other investors. So we'll see if that happens. SBF did tweet today on Thursday that FTX International is looking to raise liquidity and is, quote, in talks with players, which goes to those people I just mentioned. And he said that any of the money raised and existing collateral will go straight to users, quote. And he also said that Alameda, the wonderfully not-so-good trading firm, is winding down its trading. So that's potentially an end of an era. Right. And he added that FTX US is, quote, 100% liquid. 
Okay. So the funny uh. thing with FTX and Binance, and I'm sure there's other ones out there that I'm just not mentioning, they have their main crypto exchange, which is the global one, and then they have a yeah. U.S. division. And I know if they heard me saying this, they would say, no, they're separate entities. But it's right, right, right. BS, in my opinion. I think they're all the same. It's just like a, a little loophole, perhaps. So yeah. there's FTX yeah. you US. Could, you can incorporate yeah. them separately so that they're distinct. And yeah, and then, then there's FTX International, and then there's Binance US, and then there's Binance. So yeah. basically, he's saying FTX US is fine. So great right. for Americans. Which is an easy way to do a shell game, to be like, everything we have, put it over here. And that way we won't get slapped so hard mm-hmm. by the SEC, which is the one we're really worried about, yeah. right? It's probably his move. But yeah. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us to untangle all of this. And I'm sure you'll be plumbing the depths of this iceberg <laughs> for a long time to come. But we'll also be talking about it next week at the TechCrunch Sessions crypto event in Miami, where we will both be. Yeah, And yeah, it's going to be... a a hell of an event, especially <laughs> with all this going on. Yeah, we will have a CZ there. He will be speaking. So it'll definitely be an interesting yeah. time. And yeah. Yeah, super excited for that. So thanks very much, Jackie. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for having me on. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. Also, TC Sessions Crypto is happening November 17th in Miami. That's this week coming up. So go get your tickets for that and we'll see you there. Be sure to check out all the other TC podcasts, including Found, Equity, Chain Reaction, and the TechCrunch Live podcast. We'll be back next week. The TechCrunch podcast is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington. We're produced by Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Hold up. 